geoscience aficionados, you are listening to Nice Chats on the Geology Podcast Network. I'm Dr. B, and in each episode, I will interview an expert in various areas in geoscience and share with you a little bit of their knowledge and expertise in the research of natural problems. Each of our episodes has a central theme, and since we'll have an expert walk us through the various subjects, you don't need to worry about having any previous knowledge of what we'll be talking about. As long as you're passionate about the study of geosciences, I, with the help of our guests and occasional co-hosts, will take care of feeding all the information that you need in a casual and fun environment. By now, Nice Chats listeners know pretty well what geochronology is. If you don't, then go back to the episode where I interviewed Bryant about isotopes and also go and listen to the game that I played with Angus Rogers in a past episode. That was my all-time favorite game, and we also talk about that. Uh, so, we know about geochronology, but what about thermochronology? To tell us what it is and how scientists use thermochronology, I'm interviewing today for the last episode of the Rebecca Trilogy, Professor Rebecca Flowers from the University of Colorado Boulder. Hi, Rebecca. Nice to meet you, and uh, thank you for dedicating some time to our listeners today. Hi. Uh, pleasure to be here. <laughs> I don't know if you're aware, but um, we came up with this Rebecca trilogy idea after we coincidentally uh, had the idea to record um, two thematic episodes and just so happened to think about two Rebeccas to interview and we're like, okay, we got to go and search for a third Rebecca because this has got to be a trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lucky name, I guess. <laughs> um, so you are, you are at the University of Colorado Boulder, right? Yes. Okay, um, so I, I actually have never been to Boulder. I've been to the, to the US a few times, but I've never visited Boulder. Um, but obviously I've heard about it because, you know, it's, it has a big tradition in geology, uh, but also it's featured in my favorite show, Broad City. Uh, that's basically where Abby, the main character, one of the main characters end up after their, um, their path takes them, uh, takes her there. Um, so how, how do you like it? How do you like Boulder? Oh, Boulder is awesome. Boulder is great. I live in the mountains and uh, just snowed here yesterday. <laughs> so that's spring in Colorado for you. Um, you know, sunny, like 300 days of the year. Uh, it's, it's a, you know, any sort of outdoor activity that you like to do is available here, except, you know, ocean sports. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a great place. Yeah. I'm actually pretty jealous because uh, we don't really have real mountains in Brazil, and um, I actually, you know, on top of that, when the mountains are high enough that you would expect snow, you don't really have it because of the weather. 
So I'm embarrassed to say that I don't really even know how to ski or snowboard or anything like that, you know. <laughs> so my wife has told me that now that we are in Europe, that she's going to take me from time to time to the mountains and uh, she's going to teach me how to do that. So I'm pretty keen. <laughs> <laughs> it is a skill you have to learn if you're in Colorado. So. <laughs> De definitely, yeah. <laughs> um, so here on our podcast, we like to start off with a game to break the ice and today we're gonna play our version of a very popular game show we're gonna play geology feud so this is how the game works okay uh, we asked a bunch of questions uh, from the members of our audience and it's up to you to guess which was the most popular answer. Now, in our version of this famous game show, you will only have one chance to guess what the top answer was. And your goal is actually to try and get as many top answers as possible. Okay? Okay. So the most popular answer, not right. necessarily the correct answer, but that, the most popular answer. Exactly. There are no there are no right answers. There are no wrong answers. Are the listeners of the show earth scientists? Most ma the majority of the listeners of our show are uh, earth scientists, and then we have a few uh, non experts, let's say, or general public that uh, are still pretty interested in uh, you know in geosciences. Okay. <laughs> Okay, let me see if I can uh, internalize my Steve Harvey. Um, question number one. Garnets are a group of silicate minerals that have been used since the Bronze Age as gemstones and abrasives. All species of garnet possess similar physical properties and crystal forms, but differ in chemical composition. We asked our audience, what is your favorite garnet species. Rebecca, what do you think their top answer was? Almondine. <laughs> because it's the most abundant type. Almondine. Okay. Survey said. Oh, good. That's right. <laughs> Almondine was number one question. Almondine was the number one answer. So 31.6% of our listeners chose Almondine. And then in second place, it was Pyrope. And then third place was Grossular. And then the other, um, the other Garnets only had a few votes each. So right answer. So that's already one top answer for you. Huh? Awesome. Let's see, let's see uh, if you can get it, uh, if you can keep it going. The Hawaiian Islands were formed by a volcanic hotspot, which is an upwelling plume of magma that creates new islands as the Pacific plate moves over it. Which of the windward Hawaiian islands is the greatest of all time, according to our listeners? Oh, gosh. Um, I think I need to see your options here. Okay, so let me give you a few... <laughs> let me give you a few options. We have Hawaii, Maui, Molokai, Oahu, Kauai, or Nihiao. I'm sorry if I'm butchering the pronunciation of these, <laughs> but I did not prepare to say them out loud. So, so what do you think? I would say Maui. Survey said. 
Oh, that was actually my thought as well. I thought Maui was going to be, you know, the most picked one just because of Moana yes, and exactly. uh, Maui, you know, yes. <laughs> but, but it was actually Hawaii. Oh, huh. <laughs> Hawaii was the top one. Oh, ah. <laughs> that was actually second place. Oh, we had a, we had a three-way tie for second place between Maui, Molokai and Kauai. And then in first place, it was Hawaii, which makes sense, I guess. Yeah, I, I guess that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so next, um, next question is, a volcano on Earth is a vent or fissure in the planet's crust to reach lava, ash, rock, and gases erupt. Which volcano is the hottest? And what I mean by hottest is the greatest or the coolest. Hmm. Uh, I might need a few options. All right, I'll give you a few options here. We have Etna in Italy, Krakatoa in Indonesia, Mount St. Helens in the United States of America. Sorry, uh, an Icelandic one that I can't pronounce. <laughs> Mauna Loa in Hawaii. Uh, Mount Fuji in Japan or Cotopaxi in Ecuador? I'd say Krakatoa. Krakatoa. Oh, man. Survey set! Yes! Ah. Good job! <laughs> that, was, that was tied for t first place with uh, Etna ah. in Italy. Yeah, I've actually visited Etna. This, uh, oh, this picture cool. of me is, uh, is in Etna, yeah. Awesome. I went there with... Um, I think I've mentioned this in this podcast so many times. I think that soon enough, the listeners are going to start getting a bit uh, tired of my repeated and uh, repeated uh, stories. <laughs> but uh, I went with a group of um, of uh, graduate students during my master's. Oh, yeah, it was great. Very, very cool. Very cool experience. My next question for you is geologists are scientists who study the earth, its history, nature, materials and processes. There are many types of geologists, environmental geologists, economic geologists, and so forth and so on. Um, what is the best part of working as a geologist, according to our listeners? I think this one's pretty easy. Uh, working outside? So let's go with working outside and survey set. Boom, spot on. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 72% of our listeners think that the best part of working as a geologist is field work. Yes. And I have to agree. <laughs> <laughs> I, had a, I had a teacher, a professor in, um, in undergrad that he would always try to program his field works to areas where there were waterfalls. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, we've got uh, just a few more uh, questions here. In structural geology, a fold is a stack of originally planar surfaces, such as sedimentary strata that are bent or curved during permanent deformation. What kind of fold is the coolest? And I'll give you a few options. Mm. Isoclinal folds, sheet folds, chevron folds, pitigmatic folds, recumbent folds, or refolded folds. Mm. Gosh, I'm having a hard time trying deciding between two of them. I'd say mm. 
if, if your viewers saw these mm -hmm. options, I think I would say Tigmatic Folds. Man, this is a great picture from Sylvia, who is my wife. She is, uh, she's an occasional co-host here on the podcast, but today she couldn't be here. And let's see what our survey said. Survey said! There you go. Ah. So the survey agrees with you. <laughs> the Tigmatic Folds was the top chosen one at 34%. <laughs> I, I have to say, I, can't, I, I don't think I could pick a favorite one here, although I think that I, I just really like refolded folds. Mm -hmm. They're just hard to see, like they, they are hard to observe in an outcrop, like, a, you know, it's hard to capture yeah. how amazing they are in outcrop. They are much more impressive in larger scales. Yeah. But uh, yeah, but they're pretty cool, especially if you have like a very you know, plastic kind of a mean, then they forms these really, really nice images. I really like isoclinal folds too. Oh, I like isoclinal folds too. This this picture, uh, yeah, it's not very visible here, but it's actually from my master's area hmm. where I had a lot of uh, isoclinal folds. I also had some refolded folds. Yeah, pretty cool. Okay, the next one is informal usage eons are the longest portions of geologic time, with eras being the second longest. What is the most interesting eon in Earth's history? And this one is a controversial one. Oh gosh, so what, this is really so hard, first, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you first, which would be your answer? I don't know what my answer would be. I've worked a lot in the Archean <laughs> and I've worked a lot in the Phanerozoic worked in the Proterozoic. They're all interesting. They're all interesting. What would your, what would your audience choose? Yeah. What would my audience choose? I, I, I might think the Hadean because that gets so much publicity in terms of thinking about earth formation and water on earth and, you know, jackals, zircons hmm. and that kind of stuff. Survey said. Ooh. Oh, hmm. Okay. Interesting, huh? Okay. Yeah. So the wow. Hadean is uh, is the, the the eon that goes from the Earth's formation until four billion years ago. Mm -hmm. Then you have the Archean from four to two point five billion years, and then Proterozoic from two point five to five hundred forty million years, and the Phanerozoic basically takes the rest of the time until the present. And our listeners think that the Proterozoic is the coolest uh, and most interesting time in Earth history. Interesting. I think it's just because um, most people work in the Proterozoic, I guess. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I have no idea. Huh. <laughs> it was actually pretty close between Proterozoic and the other two. Huh. Yeah. It was almost a three-way tie. And then Proterozoic took it with just one vote huh. um, more. Cool. Um, okay, next one. An ore deposit, in its simplest terms, is a portion of Earth's crust from which some industrial raw material can be extracted at profit. What is the best kind of ore deposit? And I'll give you some options too, because there are a lot of different kinds. Epithermal deposits, VHMS deposits, porphyry deposits, SCARN, magmatic deposits, orogenic gold deposits, or paleo placer deposits. I would guess your audience would choose orogenic gold deposits because it has gold in the name. 
<laughs> that's <laughs> that's a very good guess, I think. Uh, let's see if the audience agrees that gold is the way to go. Survey said. Yes, I think <laughs> I, I think your reasoning was uh, was pretty spot on. <laughs> yeah, we got uh, orogenic gold deposits was the most chosen one. Uh, I would have gone VHMS deposits, and that was the second lowest score. And I have to say, I'm pretty disappointed at my audience because they should know that my PhD was on VHMS deposits and I would expect them to have chosen that one, but uh, I won't force anyone to do that. All right, so this is our final question. Um, dinosaurs are a group of reptiles that dominated the land for over 140 million years. What, are the, what is the dopest dino? What is the dopest dino? And from the options we have, Triceratops, Stegosaurus, Tyrannosaurus, Diplodoctus, Coelophysis, or Velociraptor? Uh, T-Rex. T-Rex, really? Okay. Let's see what the audience says. Survey said! Ooh! Oh, okay, yeah. Velociraptor. Yeah, that, that's got to be it, right? I mean, everybody's seen uh, Jurassic Park. Yeah. So. yeah, I was torn between those two. <laughs> yeah, but I think you did pretty good. I think you got most of them. And whenever you didn't get the most chosen one, you pretty much got second place. So I think that was a very <laughs> successful run. Unfortunately, I can't offer you any prize. So. <laughs> Thank you to everyone who participated, especially those that left their name in for a shout out. Here we go. Sara, Eleanor, Wonkiguf, Tizian, Antva, C-Spence, Dr. EZ, Polly, Maida, Laura, Kate, Katrin, Maria, Fernanda, Valbi, Tellurian Dude, and Manita. I'm sorry if I butchered any of your names, but hey, I challenge you to say Bahochi correctly. You can still check the survey if you haven't seen it and still want to play. Just look for the link on my Instagram's bio. And hey, follow me on Instagram, come on, at geodoctorb. If you have ideas for future episodes or guests, please write to our email, nicechats at gmail.com. Please subscribe to Nice Chats and give us a five-star review. Okay, so Rebecca, I usually love whatever ends in ology, so I can't wait to start our chat. Shall we, should we continue? Yes. <laughs> okay, so my first question to you is, what is thermochronology? Now, I fancy myself a bit of a detective, so I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say that it has something to do with temperature. <laughs> yes. I wish I could make that sound on the game show, but <laughs> <laughs> so thermochronology. So it's a tool that's used to decipher thermal histories. And so, um, you know, there are a whole variety of processes in the earth that are either dependent on temperature or are influenced by temperature, such as magnetism, metamorphism, deformation, and erosion. And so thermochronology is this powerful tool that allows you to decipher 
the timing duration of rates of a whole variety of temperature dependent processes. And so thermal chronology, so this is a, uh, this is a technique that's based on the radioactive decay of uh, parents to daughter. But when a date constrains mineral cooling, Mm-hmm. Rather than a mineral's crystallization age, it's called thermochronology. Oh, okay. And uh, we're we're in luck because um, we don't even need to explain what um, decay is because we've uh, we've already talked about that on this show, and I mentioned it in the introduction. So if you still are a bit fishy with what um, decay is. And how do you use radiogenic isotopes in, in dating um, processes in geosciences? Go back and listen to the episode with Bryant Ware. So, Rebecca, we just uh, recently had an episode that focused on ultra-high temperature metamorphism. In the case of thermochronology, what kind of temperature ranges are you focused on? Yeah, so the thermochronology technique that I use is mm-hmm. called uranium-thorium-helium thermochronology. And uh, the minerals that we most typically work on constrain temperatures from about 200 degrees C down to about 30 degrees C. Mm-hmm. But there are some minerals that you can work on with uranium-thorium-helium that gives you access to temperatures probably higher than about 350 degrees C. But typically in the 200 down to 30 degrees C temperature range. So sort of uppermost or middle to uppermost crustal processes. Okay, okay. So a bit bit lower temperature, let's say. Yes. Okay, cool. And which are the most targeted mineral phases? So apatite and zircon um, and to a lesser extent titanite are the minerals that have been most widely used for uranium, thorium, helium. And this is because uh, they are common accessory phases in a whole variety of rocks. They have relatively high uranium and thorium contents, and they're also um, of a reasonable size. Um, But uh, most labs, including ours, are doing a variety of work on other minerals that could be uranium, thorium, helium uh, thermochronometers. And so, you know, by expanding the ability to work on other phases, this allows you to potentially resolve more detailed thermal histories to date processes and events that are otherwise difficult to ex- constrain mm-hmm. and also to you know, expand thermal history work to lithologies that don't have minerals like apatite and zircon. So, for example, there's a lot of new work being done on hematite um, and other types of iron oxides. People have worked on rutile, magnetite, fluorite, calcite, alunite, as well as other other phases. Well, that's pretty cool. I love when uh, when people try to expand a little bit their toolboxes. Um, we actually have a, an upcoming uh, session at Goldschmidt, at the virtual mm-hmm. Goldschmidt this year. And it's, it's all about that. It's about, you know, thinking outside the box and advancing a little bit the uh, analytical capabilities and the way we, we reuse data and reprocess data and just look at things from different perspectives exactly to, you know, extract more information from what we have there because the geological record is what it is. Whatever is missing is not going to, you know, present itself. It's gone. So we just need to learn how to extract more from what we do have. And that's what what our session is all about. So I I really like that answer. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, so what type of geological, I think you, you mentioned this a little bit before, but maybe um, we can talk a bit more about that. What type of geological processes can thermochronology be used to constrain or to um, improve our understanding of? Yeah, well, you know, so conventional applications of uranium and thorium helium have been to uh, constrain uh, exhumation histories and erosion histories to um, decipher paleotopography and um, landscape evolution, you know, both at the local scale and at sort of the origin scale. But um, with all of the new sort of technique development that is happening in the field of helium, and again, the expansion of the tool to date other minerals, there are all kinds of new and innovative applications that people are doing. You know, uh, people are uh, using uh, the tool to, uh, you know, such as iron oxide investigations to address fault zone processes mm -hmm. and weathering histories. Um, you know, we've uh, dated extraterrestrial materials uh, like lunar materials and meteorite materials to infer impact histories. Uh, oh, people cool. have worked on really young tephras to quantify the ages of eruption events that are less than like one million years. And um, there's also a lot of work being done to decipher surface histories over sort of extended timescales over hundreds of millions of years, sort of what um, we do a lot of this kind of work in my lab, what some people call deep time uranium, thorium, helium thermochronology. And I think part of the reason for the diversity of studies is because it is such a versatile technique. Um, you know, you can date materials as old as Hadean, you know, as old as 4 billion years old. Um, mm -hmm. from extraterrestrial materials and materials as young as historical times, just a couple thousand years old. And pretty much any mineral has the potential to be a helium thermochronometer as long as it has trace amounts of uranium and thorium in the crystal structure and it's retentive to helium because we don't have a problem with initial helium. Like for mm -hmm. uranium lead, there's people often have issues with what's called common lead. Yeah. We don't have that problem with the helium system. So there's a lot of minerals that have the potential to be dated that can be applied to uh, a variety of sort of relatively difficult to date processes. Okay, um, I actually just thought of, just thought back to my undergrad, and when we were um, learning about stratigraphy and structural geology and just field mapping, we were told that there was so basically in the area where we study um, at my university. And that's actually the city that I grew up in. We have this um, hematite-rich schist, right? And there is um, a, a hypothesis that this was formed mm -hmm. by basically laterization of the soil, you know, at the time of the position of this sequence. So around 1.7 billion years ago. And mm -hmm. I, I mean, I'm not familiar with the literature because this was something that was just mentioned to us as undergrads. But I wonder if maybe thermochronology can be used to find if that hypothesis stands or not. That's definitely possible. It all depends on also what happened subsequently, you know, because if you had too much heating since then, it will reset the system oh, right. to something younger than that primary age. But if it's in an area that has been relatively unperturbed mm -hmm. for the last 1.7 billion years, there's definitely the possibility that you could get at that primary hematite age. Oh, okay. a, I mean, there's a lot of people like actually, you know, working on exactly those kinds of problems right now with helium. 
Right. And um, so what happens if you have, for example, green schist? Is that too high temperature to to work? Yeah, I think that'll probably that'll probably be too high. Yeah. So that'll so even if you have a, you know, it's it's because it's relative, isn't it? What high temperature is? Uh, if you're talking metamorphic yeah. uh -huh. uh, processes, you know, people will tell you, oh, green schist is, uh, is pretty low. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> OK, so I also said previously uh, that I've never been to Boulder in Colorado. But I actually have been to Colorado before. I did, you know, the classic touristic thing and drove up to the Grand Canyon. And I have mm -hmm. to say that to this day, it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Not only you are taken by the, you know, the immensity of it. It's just beautiful and, and, and huge. You can't really understand. But it is so cool from a geological point of view, how clearly you can see that huge unconformity right in the middle of it. Uh, you know, as I mentioned to you before, most of our listeners are geos. But for those that don't know what an unconformity is, can you help me explain to them what it is? Yeah, so an unconformity uh, marks a gap in the geologic record. And so I can give an example with the great unconformity, which is sort of this famous and iconic feature that separates older, typically, you know, like Precambrian basement, mm -hmm. older unfossiliferous units from younger overlying uh, Phanerozoic uh, fossiliferous strata, and across which there's typically about half a billion years up to three billion years of missing time. So an unconformity is a, a gap in the rock record that represents a, a big uh, interval of missing time. Okay, cool. And um, you worked uh, on this, uh, how do you call it, great unconformity? Mm -hmm. Yes. And you used terminology to investigate it? Well, so, um, so we have an active project right now where we have been working on the Great Unconformity in a variety of locations. Mm -hmm. I recently published a study on the Great Unconformity exposed here in the Colorado Front Range. One of my PhD students, Barb Peak, uh, has a paper in review right now on uh, the Great Unconformity in the Grand Canyon. And then we have another study that another of my students, Colin Sturrock, has been working on up in the Canadian Shield. And, um, you know, the primary aim of these studies is to try to understand the timing and the magnitude of the last major erosion event uh, that led to the development of the erosion surface prior to deposition of the overlying Phanerozoic sedimentary sequences. Um, because, you know, precisely because that feature represents this major time gap, mm -hmm. you know, you can't study it directly with preserved rock units. So thermochronology provides a mechanism to try to get at that um, missing history. Um, and, you know, there are big questions related to how, when was that last big erosion event? And um, how uh, was the Great Unconformity formed by one synchronous uh, singular erosion event worldwide because there is it is a, a feature that is very widespread mm -hmm. or did it form at different times in different places um, with uh, different causes yeah that's very interesting and the great unconformity yeah go ahead. no no please 
Now, as I say, and it's been linked to, you know, things like, you know, that erosion event has been linked to things like the Cambrian explosion and um, oxygenation of the Earth's atmosphere. And so understanding whether major erosion did indeed happen right before the Phanerozoic or occurred like 500 million years before that is important for understanding the role of the great unconformity and that erosion history for these are larger like earth earth system processes mm -hmm. that's really interesting and so i mean this uh, these rocks are being eroded where are they ending up the 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 so you mean the rocks that have been removed across the great unconformity yeah is that what you mean like like so we're eroding the rocks and forming this unconformity right um mm -hmm. is, so do, do do we know which are the basically you know the the products of the deposition of that sediment that was transported yeah that's a that's a great question i think um you know it's going to depend on where you are <laughs> <laughs> you know where the sediment went so you know up in the canadian shield we have a data set that suggests that there is was a a major erosion event in uh late Neoproterozoic time uh, across much of the interior mm -hmm. of the Canadian Shield. And there are uh, late Ediacaran to Cambrian strata that occurs on uh, the Cordilleran margin mm -hmm. that we think might be the product of that big erosion event. Um, but I think you're right. It's like really important to be thinking like not only like my technique, we typically detect erosion, but like where's the complementary sedimentary record? So any place you have sediment, that means there was erosion somewhere. Uh -huh. And so I think thinking of these things together in terms of linked histories, like if you have erosion somewhere, you have sedimentation. And how do you tie these uh -huh. these records together? It's also like trying to figure out what was there before and is now now gone. You know, for example, you know, across much of the Canadian Shield, which is now just exposed Archean and Proterozoic basement. Uh -huh. We know from the thermochronology that there used there were that whole region was buried by multiple packages of Phanerozoic sedimentary rocks that were later eroded away. That and in places those were like probably greater than three kilometers thick. And so just because those rocks aren't there anymore doesn't mean that they weren't there once. <laughs> and that's you know thermochronology is a, a tool that you can use to sort of decipher the the thermal imprint of that missing sedimentary record. And so. I think the more work that we've been doing in a lot of these ancient regions, the more that we're realizing like there is a lot of the sedimentary record that was once there and has been eroded away. Um, so for our final segment, we like to ask always the same three questions at the end of every episode. These are questions which are a bit more personal. They are designed to make each guest uh, a bit more familiar to the listener. And they also allow us to compare experiences and opinions across uh, all of the geoscience research fields. And the first question is, how did you first decide to become a geoscientist? You know, maybe when I was a kid, although I don't think I realized it at the time, um, I lived in, I grew up in Virginia and my family would go to the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. And I always wanted to go to the Natural History Museum. Mm -hmm. And in the atrium there where you entered it, there was this gigantic dinosaur skeleton. 
I, I kind of feel like it was like a T-Rex, like what you showed in that slide or the image that you showed when we were asking about answering, okay, what's everybody's favorite yeah. dinosaur? Um, and so uh, I, I, I don't know. I just loved that dinosaur. And that is like one of my earliest memories actually was going to seeing that huge dinosaur, which was so huge because I was so little. <laughs> and then when I was in college, after my freshman year in college at William & Mary, in Virginia, we did a uh, Western US field trip and went and saw like the Grand Canyon and went to Colorado for the first time. And, and I was just like, okay, this is this is for me. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. I mean, I think that uh, if I had seen the Grand Canyon when I was uh, you know, trying to decide what to do with my life, that would have pushed me dramatically towards uh, geosciences for sure. Um, what are some of the specifics of the research that you are conducting at present? Uh, you went into a little bit of your research and mentioned some papers that we're going to put on the show notes if people want to check them out, and I definitely will. Uh, but, you know, some other things that you are working on or what you're doing right now. Yeah, so well, as you mentioned, you know, we've been working on this uh, great unconformity prob problem, and so that's an active project that we have going. Um, another thing that we're doing is um, we're doing a variety of, of method development. We're currently in the process of installing a variety of new equipment in the lab that will allow us to carry out um, in situ laser ablation helium dating. Mm -hmm. Most uh, uranium therm helium analyses are done right now on single whole crystals of minerals, but uh, the laser capabilities allow allows you to have high spatial resolution. And for example, to map out the distribution of helium, uranium and thorium and uranium thorium helium dates within single crystals, and then couple that with uranium lead data and Raman maps and uh, CL images. And so that provides the potential to extract much more detailed information from uh, single uh, mineral crystals. And so currently there's just a handful of labs with this capability. And so uh, we're, there's going to be, I think there's going to be a lot of innovation in this realm over the next decade. So we're very excited to be a part of that. And then we've also got, um, we have a funded uh, NSF project to work on kimberlites across uh, the North American Arctic to try to better understand the evolution of the surface, the lithosphere and the deeper mantle, and to try to better understand how those are, are coupled. Uh, we have another project with a large team of researchers um, in which our part is to constrain the history of ophiolite exhumation in New Guinea to try to understand whether uh, the chemical weathering of those ultramafic rocks may have contributed to global climate cooling in the Cenozoic, in the latest Cenozoic. And then we also have a new NASA project to date appetites from lunar samples um, to better understand the impact history of the moon. And so um, we'll be looking for a new uh, PhD student for that project next year. And of course, a lot of this work, it's not me doing it. It's like my group who's doing it, right? <laughs> like the people who actually do all the work in the lab. Um, but we've got a really great team of people right now in our lab group. So um, the final question is, what do you enjoy doing when you are not geosciencing? And, you know, given that you share with us where you live, I, I'm pretty sure I know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I like doing all kinds of outdoor stuff. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff I like doing. I mean, I'm a mom and I like spending time with my family. Mm -hmm. And so the kids are old enough now that we like doing family trips and going camping. 
you know, I like cooking, that kind of stuff. Um, I'm also a, a runner. I do a lot of trail running. I'm an ultra runner. Mm-hmm. So I've run 200 mile trail races. And I did my first 50 miler of this year for four days ago. Oh, wow. That's cool. So um, it's a great way to get outside. Um, okay. Um, so, Rebecca, thank you so much for having this chat uh, with us today. Um, I think that it was a sure. great way to finish our trilogy. And uh, yeah, and I, I really, I really enjoyed uh, meeting you and learning about thermochronology and what you do. Um, I think that it's uh, it's really cool and great work, and it does sound like you know the bouquet is a is a great group to be part of. <laughs> <laughs> great. Well, thank you so much. It was a lot of fun, and uh, my pleasure. Awesome. Thank you so much. What a great conclusion to the Rebecca Trilogy. I've added some resources to the show notes for all of you to check Rebecca's work in detail and also ways you can contact her. Nice Chats is part of the Geology Podcast Network and it is sponsored by Traveling Geologists. Follow Traveling Geologists on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter and check out the blog. More episodes of this and other GPN podcasts are available at travelinggeologists.com or wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We all have rocks so much. Imagine if we could grow them in a lab. In two weeks, we'll talk with the Dr. Frankenstein of experimental petrology. I'll see you then. And keep in mind that sticks and stones may break my bones, but they also make coal after a few million years. Mm-hmm.